This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast for season five of the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we take a slight detour from our regular programming to bring you our top 10 best years in movies. Dana and I have both had a list prepared, and we even got a remote submission from the Revisionist Almanac's Andrew Corns. If you haven't subscribed to that show, their first episode releases this Friday, so you still have time. But, Dad, shall we get right to it? Okay, sounds good. What was your criteria of how you decided your list? Let's okay. go with that, because I, I think it could be very different between the two of us. Okay, what I did was is I started with the five nominees or however many nominees there were for the Academy Award. And I looked at those. So then I picked which films that I thought really were exceptional within that category. Then I went back through for those years and I looked at the other great films that I saw for those years. And when I could find five or six films that I thought were exceptional, that would make the list. Then I had a list of about 13 years. I pared it down to 10 and then ranked them. Do you still have your extra three for some honorable mentions at the end of this? Uh, I'd have to, I, I, I don't have them with me. No, I don't. Okay. Well, that's too bad. Cause I have a few honorable mentions for myself. We didn't get any honorable mentions from Mr. Corns, but, uh, we at least have a few, we can debate off of my list. Cause I actually had a top 20 and kind of went from there. So, all right. Now that we have yours, before we get to my criteria and my number 10, let's start with your number 10. All right. I have 2010, The King's Speech, The Social Network, Inception, 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, The Kids Are All Right, Toy Story 3, which I think is vastly underrated for a Pixar film, uh, The Coen Brothers' True Grit, and Winter's Bone. So those are just the Academy Award Best Picture nominees. Did you have any other ones you wanted to shout out from that particular year? No, that's and that's primarily why it's 10 on my list, because when you just look at the, the three, uh, three of those, which is the Social Network, Inception, and the King's Speech, not to mention Black Swan, that's a pretty solid year to begin with. And so I it made the list, but there wasn't any other films that I thought were that great to include so that's why it's number 10 as opposed to higher all right and what are the four that you're entering in as the let's say rush more of that year i'm entering in social network king's speech inception and true grit okay true grit the remake yes i know that a uh, five-timer club member of ours one Adam Hitchcock will be upset that uh, Toy Story 3 did not make it, but it just we move on. fell out. All right. So to divide the two of us up, I will give Mr. Corns' first nominee, 
and I'm going to have to guess as to what his Rushmore was because I never actually asked him what the top four he would nominate for a particular year is. So I just took basically the first four that appeared in his little paragraphs that he cut up for us. But his number 10, 1954. Why? A year that showed just how much great world cinema there was, even if the Academy Awards at the time only seemed to recognize American filmmaking. On the Waterfront did bless us with a god-tier performance from Marlon Brando, but we also got two Alfred Hitchcock classics, Rear Window and Dial M for Murder, one of which we've already discussed and one of which is on the schedule for this year. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, which we've already discussed, Fellini's Lestrada, and the debut of the monster known as Godzilla all make this a fantastic entry at his number 10. So for his Rushmore... I put down on the waterfront, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and Seven Samurai. That was one of the years I was considering. I think that was on my honorable mention. It was on my honorable mention as well, but I have that uh, coming up later. All right. So my first year is one that I don't think any other person would necessarily mention, but I actually think that the overall depth of that particular year and its top four, at least in my opinion. And it was tough figuring out which the fourth one was. I ended up deciding on a a very close criteria for myself because there were a couple of really good choices. I think there's a clear top three and then there's some good cases for a number four. But I have 2016. Now, part of my criteria for paring this down. Yes, I'd looked at the Academy Awards and the Best Picture list as kind of a narrowing force because they do at least usually recognize five to ten of the best films of a particular year. So you can use that as a narrowing category. But I tried to expand my thought process a little bit more and see what other movies were available, stuff that would be overlooked, such as horror, animation, comedy, etc., that would allow me to give a little bit more depth to a particular year. When I looked at 2016, there are just so many really good movies in my mind that spring to kind of this well of, oh yeah, that was in this year, and oh yeah, that was in this year. So a couple of the ones that didn't make my top four, Fences, which I thought was a really great adaptation. I thought Denzel was great in the movie. I mean, it's Denzel. So I thought Viola Davis, of course, gave her very absolute best in that movie. She has one scene that's just a knockout. But we had two great Marvel entries in Doctor Strange, at least to me, and Captain America Civil War kind of rounding out that part of the list as you would expect in the 2010s. We had a fairly decent uh, animated crop led by Zootopia that year. We had a really great comedy in Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, which if you haven't seen it, it's one of those mockumentary style types with Andy Samberg. Fantastic. Hell or High Water, an underrated thriller. Deadpool, the movie that that completely undercut the superhero genre and is probably one of the more popular franchises at this point because it pokes so much fun at superheroes. And Deadpool 3, hopefully coming out sometime this year, depending on how things go, we'll, we'll see yet. But my top four in this category, I have Arrival, the Denis Villeneuve instant classic sci-fi film that 
it's one of the few that just absolutely bowled me over the first time I watched it. I can't say enough good words about that movie. I have Moonlight, which is not one that I personally have an affinity for, but I have a great respect for it and for the context with which it was seen in its time and the fact that it's on so many great all-time lists. It's one of the few entries from the 21st century in the sight and sound poll, so I think it needs to be recognized here. There's the obvious connective tissue to Moonlight with La La Land, the best picture winner for all of two minutes, which when it happened, you and I were so distraught, so disappointed because La La Land was the film that brought us out of our funk after the Packers got absolutely destroyed by the Falcons in the NFC Championship game that year. And it was an absolute godsend after that game. I can't say enough good words about it. I love that movie. It's fantastic. And then what is arguably the best Star Wars movie of the last decade, Rogue One. So that's my top four. Okay. Interesting decision or choices. So I'm going to go back in time uh, for my nine. 1939. Um, We'll have this film coming up, but Gone with the Wind. The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Of Mice and Men, Weathering Heights, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Gunga Din, and Young Mr. Lincoln, played by Henry Fonda. And I do want to clarify that it is not The Hunchback from Notre Dame of the mid-90s that was the Disney animated non-classic, let's say. This is with Charles Lawton. Ah, actually, that's pretty good casting. Yes. And uh, Gunga Din, to me, I remember watching that. Oh, boy, has to be 30 years ago. Just catching it on on uh, either AMC or Turner, whichever was when AMC was still doing classic movies. But that's uh, Cary Grant and Robert Preston and Ray Milland playing the three leads uh, from the French Foreign Legion and Gunga Din. I thought it was an excellent movie, very underrated and, and forgotten for the most part. But uh, uh, I thought it was an extremely strong year. I'm going to go with, you know, I, I have my problems with it, but as far as filmmaking goes, and this is something we'll have to be discussing more, the difference between filmmaking and the message of the film will have a difference uh, to me. But Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I would probably go with Stagecoach simply because of the uh, uh, John Ford, John Wayne tie as my four on the mountain. I'm glad that you put this one down. It was one I had considered, but given that I have not seen quite a few of the, let's say, depth picks in this particular year. I mean, obviously everybody's seen the wizard of Oz. I've seen withering heights, which I actually liked and you hated (laughs) Stagecoach, which I'm a little bit more bored by. I think there are better Ford films in my opinion. Mr. Smith goes to Washington after the first time that you see it. It feels a little too earnest. If you ask me much in the same way, you can't take it with you was from the previous year, (laughs) but you have the all time classics the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. 
and it's really hard to overcome that. So I'm glad that you picked it because I don't have it on my list. I think it comes in at like number 18 for me. Okay. So let's go back to Mr. Corns here. He has one that will be appearing later on my list, but 1962. Why, you may ask. David Lean brought us the epic of all epics with his sweeping Lawrence of Arabia. The Japanese samurai classic Harakiri came out as well, and James Bond arrived on the scene with Dr. No. Not to mention Stanley Kubrick's genius began to take shape with Lolita. So I think those are his four films that he nominated for his, uh, let's say, Rushmore of that particular year. But as I mentioned before, I go too much further. I have that higher up on my list. So do I. So... My number nine, I have 1975, one of the all-time Oscar years. Obviously, the top five nominees are all all-time classic films, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, Nashville, but there are a couple of other depth picks that uh, I'd like to mention as well. Three Days of the Condor, a great 70s thriller, spy thriller with Robert Redford, Shampoo, which we will be covering, I think, next year. I'll have to take a look at the schedule again. I may have scheduled that one in just for you because you apparently love that film. And one that we covered early on at your own pick, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which does make my top four. Nice. So I will nominate 1975. Jaws is number two on our all-time greatest list right now, and I think that needs to lead my Rushmore list. We'll give credit to the best picture of that year with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But I also have Dog Day Afternoon and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So those are my four. All right. Do you have that higher? Uh, No, I do not have it on my list. You don't even have it at all. Wow. No. All right. It was a consideration, but I don't think I even put it on my uh, 13. All right. I had a feeling you were going to pick it anyway, so... Yeah, I think that most people would probably put that one somewhere inside their top 10, but it's only number nine for me. I I don't know if I believe as much in the the full depth of that particular year. That one's much more of a top-heavy year, if you ask me. Okay. Okay, for me, number eight. This is the year I graduated from high school, and I saw almost every one of these films in theaters except for one. But 1982, that was the year of Gandhi, E.T., uh, Missing, The Verdict, Tootsie, Conan the Barbarian, which launched Arnold's career, The World According to Garp, which really was the first movie vehicle for Robin Williams, and I believe it was the first major film for John Lithgow. But Officer and a Gentleman, 48 Hours, King of Comedy, which uh, was a Scorsese film, and Night Shift, which was a Ron Howard film with uh, Michael Keaton and one Henry Winkler, where they are uh, the caretakers or night shift people for a morgue, and they're running a prostitution ring out of the morgue. It's a comedy. Okay, and your top four for that year? I'm my top one for that year. I swear over and over that the best film of that year was Tootsie. Then I go with E.T., then Gandhi, then The Verdict. Now, obviously, being a trial attorney at one point in your career, although I guess you could still say that you're somewhat of a trial attorney based on the work that you do now, 
I don't know if the verdict ever really appealed to me. For some reason, I just don't see what other people see in that movie. I don't understand why people think it's special. It does nothing for me. But where do you sit on that type of courtroom drama? Well, let's just say this. I've known a lot of attorneys who were in the same situation as Paul Newman and had defined themselves, their lives, personal lives falling apart around them. So I understood exactly what was going on and I could appreciate uh, what he was doing or trying to do more than most people did. And having watched it since I actually finished law school and, and tried Oh, 150, I think, uh, cases to juries. I, I have an appreciation for it. It's a very subtle film. It's not one that's full of drama, but it is a very realistic portrayal of courtroom scenes and uh, does not insult the intelligence of a lawyer. Fair enough. All right, so that was your number eight. Let's move to Mr. Corns' number eight, which will appear higher up on my list as well. So we have some overlap again. He has 2019. Why? We just never knew how good we had it before COVID hit in 2020. <laughs> the last year of each decade always seems to bring a barrage of great films, and this year was no exception. Sam Mendes found a new way to tell a war epic with 1917. Ari Aster scarred us in daylight with Midsommar. Tarantino took us in a time machine with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite won Best Picture, a deserved reward for years of remarkable films from Korea. Marvel also paid off years of meticulous world building with the Avengers Endgame and young filmmakers like the Safdie brothers and Robert Eggers surprised us with Uncut Gems and The Lighthouse. So for his four, I put down 1917 Midsommar, once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. I, I agree. It's a good year. I I mean, I, I kind of shied away from more recent years simply because I didn't think of it as I was having a hard time being able to justify it because there has not been a long enough or longitudinal history to really evaluate it for me. Obviously, I don't care what you guys do, but for me, I just had a problem with that. So I didn't go with anything too new. I think part of his argument to me when he gave me the list was, is there are so many years with a lot of depth and just the overall quality of movie that you'll have instead of maybe 10 really good movies from a particular year in the forties or fifties, you'll have 25, 30, 40 really good movies in a particular year, just due to the international scene, which you and I are not as versed on as some other people the sure. independent scene and how much that is really built up since the nineties. And then you'll have the studio system or the big tent pole stuff as well. And if some of that is done well, you can get some of these other years in, in a way that yes, you may not have certain classics quote unquote, because we haven't had enough time to really give them a true classic score yet, but you can at least appreciatively, I think in the moment in 2019, I knew it was a special year. Yes. All right, let's go to my number eight. And this will also be a surprise because while I know that the 90s will be a much discussed decade in this particular show, 
this is a year that I'm not sure anybody else would have necessarily picked. I have 1995. Okay. So you get the teen classic and Clueless. You get Casino, a film at the time that wasn't necessarily appreciated in its moment, but heavily rewatchable Scorsese film. Kind of in the same vein as a Goodfellas, but certainly very rewatchable. You have the original Toy Story, which is in my top four. You have a really good Best Picture winner in Braveheart, if in my opinion, although probably not the best film of that particular year. You get an all-time classic crime thriller with Seven from David Fincher that pretty much started his entire career, given that his only other feature film credit to that point had been Aliens 3, which was a disaster. (laughs) But you also have what I would say is my full top four. You have Toy Story, which obviously starts the Pixar movement, the digital animation, etc. Sure. You have one of the most talked about movies that year that earned Kaiser Soze a Oscar himself, The Usual Suspects. No matter what Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer are nowadays, that movie was still very important and very influential. You have Apollo 13, which is one of your all-time favorites. Yes. And you have the Michael Mann crime thriller that is a huge staple for certain critics everywhere in Heat and is kind of the basis for what would eventually become The Dark Knight. So I have 1995 at number eight. Okay. All right, let's cover our number sevens quickly, and then we'll cut to our first break. All right. Number seven, 1976. Ooh. We had Rocky, Taxi Driver, Network, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, but the, the depth here. A Star is Born, the Barbara Streisand vehicle with Chris Christopherson. Marathon Man, which was uh, Dustin Hoffman and Sir Lawrence Olivier. My boy, it's called acting. Yes. Actually, uh, that film caused a significant decline in dental visits after it was released. (laughs) The Front, Logan's Run, and an extremely good film that was fun. The Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau and um, was that uh, Tatum O'Neill? Might have been. I, I think it's Tatum it. O'Neill was in it. But it was it was uh, it was a, a, a great film and it kind of changed sports films and had this you know mentality of the losers and such. I don't know. I always thought it was a very fun film. Well, I'm not going to discuss it too much further because it's higher up on my list. Okay. But which is your top four for that year? All the President's Men, Network, Taxi Driver, and Rocky. All right. I think that's very easily a worthy four. Those are the four big hitters from that particular Oscar race. All right. Let's go to Mr. Corns' number seven, one we've already discussed on the show, but 1975. I don't think there has ever been a better collection of Best Picture nominees Then 1975, the Academy got things so spot on that year with perfect films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, and Nashville. Jean Dielman, or Jean, Jean Dielman, I've never actually watched the film yet, but also came out in 1975, top of the sight and sound poll currently. Plus some radical other films like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and the notorious Salo 
or the 120 Days of Sodom. So he has number seven, 1975. All right, my number seven. Oh, excuse me. I, I should put his top four that I have down. I hope he's not going to really hit me over the head with this one because I don't think he's much of a Robert Altman fan. But I put down One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry Lyndon, Jaws, and Dog Day Afternoon for him on his Rushmore. All right, so my number seven then. I have 2008. The movie that completely reshaped the next decade of movies and the year that changed the Oscars as we went for an expanded Best Picture category, supposedly to promote more popular films, but instead have gotten much smaller films nominated, stuff that would have been overlooked, and subsequently, instead of going with just the studio films, we've gotten smaller and smaller Best Picture winners and stuff that was recognized that's much more off the beaten path so that we have this <laughs> valley between what the yes. public's actually watching and what the Academy's clearly watching. So among great films from that particular year, one of the better animated films of all time, WALL-E, which we enjoyed on this show. Mm-hmm. We have Tropic Thunder, great comedy that uh, pokes fun at Vietnam films as well as racism, even if it's extremely tongue-in-cheek. We have Gran Torino that we recently covered on the show. Yes. An underrated Jim Carrey comedy for me because he's actually the straight man instead of being kind of the Ace Ventura type in Yes Man. We have a good Tom Cruise action film in a period piece where he doesn't have to be all Tom Cruise-y in Mission Impossible type stuff with Valkyrie. We have a bunch of Will Ferrell slash, let's say, fraternity type comedies in Step Brothers and Semi-Pro. We got one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. But then we get to the top of the list with some of the superhero stuff. This was the original Iron Man, this thing that kicked off all of Marvel that we've discussed on the show. We had Benjamin Button, which was a Brad Pitt vehicle that I think has kind of gone overlooked subsequently, but another David Fincher film. And then we get to the heavy hitters. So among my top four for that year, besides Iron Man, I have Slumdog Millionaire, the obvious best picture choice in that particular year for most people. But we have the unnominated, which I believe probably should have won best picture, The Dark Knight. Probably the most influential film of the last 20 years because of how much Hollywood shifted in that direction, trying to recapture the glory of what that one film accomplished to be both critically acclaimed and make a lot of money and just completely astound audiences for a while. And Marvel was able to capture some of it, but never quite the critical acclaim on top of, and maybe the awards attention that the dark Knight ever got. So my top four for this year, Slumdog Millionaire, The Dark Knight, Iron Man, two of the more influential films of that entire era. And I go for the probably most quoted film of that entire year among my friend group, Step Brothers. All right, so just a recap. So far, you had what? 2010, 1939, 1982, and 1976. All right. Then Mr. Corns had 1954, 1962, 
Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 196th episode, we are set to discuss the first feature film from Joel and Ethan Cohen, Blood Simple from 1984, directed and written by Joel Cohen with Ethan Cohen, music by Carter Burwell, starring John Getz, Francis McDormand, and M. Emmett Walsh. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, where we left off was your number six. My number six, 1944. We Ooh. had Going My Way, Double Indemnity, Gaslight, Since You Went Away, Wilson, Lifeboat, this is the depth, National Velvet, which was Liz Taylor's first film, Arsenic and Old Lace, which is a wonderful film, uh, and to have or have not, and Laura. So I think this is a uh, really deep year. There's not a a, a big, you know, like knock it out of the park film, although I really love Double Indemnity. So that's going to be on my top or my Mount Rushmore. And as as will Gaslight, uh, Lifeboat is a Hitchcock film that I think was uh, is vastly underrated. Uh, and I think uh, To Have and Have Not is one of the better films that uh, Bogart has done outside of the ones that are the three or four most memorable. All right. Let's cut over to Mr. Corns here and see what he has for his number six. He has 1974. This year kicked off the best three-year run in film history, in my opinion. We got the greatest sequel ever with The Godfather Part 2, the dawn of a new style of low-budget horror with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Roman Polanski's mesmerizing Chinatown. On top of that, independent cinema was set to explode thanks to films like A Woman Under the Influence, Scenes from a Marriage, and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I believe the last is a Scorsese film. So I have him down for The Godfather Part 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Chinatown, and a woman under the influence as his Rushmore for that particular year. Alice doesn't live here. I guess I didn't realize that was Scorsese. It was the basis for a long running television series comedy called Alice. All right, let's cut to my number six. I have a film that I know will come up later on Mr. Corns's list, but it may be on yours too. I have 1994. The obvious best picture race of that particular year where we've retroactively said Forrest Gump is somehow not a good movie because it beat Pulp Fiction and the Shawshank Redemption, two of the best films of that particular decade, I think is a little overdoing it. Forrest Gump was an absolute sensation at the time, and it is a good film. It just wasn't the film that the other two were where neither of them really got as much recognition in the moment as they probably should have because America wasn't ready for what those films were. They had to kind of grow into them. Shawshank Redemption famously was not a big box office success, but really took off in subsequent years. And Pulp Fiction, yes, it was new, but it was a critic darling before it was ever the big outward hit that it was among the rest of America. It was to certain sections, but it was not a widely available film because it was still a Miramax production. And that was not well circulated until probably the awards season. So Forrest Gump was the big studio budget 
the heartwarming film that everybody was a part of. Tom Hanks was on top of the world. He was one of your, if not the most marketable star of the moment. But we have other films from that particular year that make up that. I think Quiz Show is definitely underrated. Now, whether you want to say that this is the best top five ever created for a particular year, I disagree because Four Weddings and a Funeral is awful, and it's why I can't stand Hugh Grant. But just a few other films from this particular year. Hoop Dreams, one of the best documentaries, especially about sports, ever put together. A personal favorite of yours, Ed Wood. Yes. Natural Born Killers which I know yes. that at least one of our guests has had as his favorite all-time film. Clerks, another of these small independent filmmakers who makes their film and becomes much bigger. And Kevin Smith, who is obviously now a big podcaster on top of it. And then the obvious top four for me, you have the top three, which is in some combination, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, and The Shawshank Redemption. But I'm going to throw in a action thriller for the time and despite most people thinking he can't act i'm gonna nominate keanu reeves speed okay this was one of those films that was on my 13 and i had a heart or i had to cut it because even though i think that the top three were good and there were some several good films that were beyond the top three uh i had a hard time feeling that it needed to be on the list because the 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 supporting cast was not as strong. That leads me then to my, uh, what is a sixth? Five. Five. Oh, miscounted. Okay. 1967. The Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Cool Hand Luke. The Dirty Dozen, In Cold Blood, and The Jungle Book, which I think is an underrated Disney film. A lot of good songs came out of that and uh, resurrected the careers of a lot of uh, radio and film stars who were in their twilight years doing voiceovers. I mean, if you ever watch In Cold Blood, it is a phenomenal film based on Truman Capote's book, vastly underrated I love The Dirty Dozen. I think it's a uh, uh, a really great film that um, is counter, you know, the counterculture movement type deal. So I have as my four, In the Heat of the Night, uh, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and uh, The Dirty Dozen. All right. I did not see the Dirty Dozen coming in that one. This would be my number 14 year overall. But I do think that it's a good overall year where you can contribute a lot of depth as well as the change from the old to the new Hollywood and get kind of the first real seeds of it, even if things hadn't quite changed until we get to Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider. Sure. All right, let's go to Mr. Corns's number five, which would be an honorable mention on my list. He has 1999. The last year of the 20th century packed one hell of a punch. Fight Club and The Matrix brought an entirely new attitude that signaled what was to come at the start of the 2000s. Other radical films from 1999 included Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, Stanley Kubrick's final work, Eyes Wide Shut, 
the arrival of a new voice in horror with M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, and several independent films that have garnered lots of love from cinephiles over the last 20 years, Ratcatcher, Beau Travail, and Rosetta. And I put as his four nominees, Fight Club, The Matrix, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut. I probably should substitute out that last one for The Sixth Sense, because I think that uh, he might have a problem with Eyes Wide Shut being his final entry on the Rushmore of 1999. All right, my number five. A previously discussed year, but I have 1962. The obvious one being Lawrence of Arabia, which by far is the best film of that particular year and one of the best films of the 1960s, if not just purely a top 10 movie of all time. A sweeping epic, David Lean's cinematography and the editing that was done for that film are just absolutely masterful. But I'll round out a really good solid four here in addition to that. We have The Music Man, which doesn't make my top four, but was a very good stage play adaptation. I still think a very good musical with Robert Preston. Fantastic film. I love watching that. It's it's a great film. We have another one, a spy thriller that has grown on me the more that I've thought back on watching it the first time, although the first time watching it through, I was not all that plussed with it. But The Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra, Obviously, a remake with Denzel Washington much later, several decades later. But the standout performance for me, though, was Angela Lansbury as possibly the worst mother in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, She is fucking fantastic in that film. And the only reason that I bump it down is, is that we have what I consider to be a top five Western of all time with the man who shot Liberty Valance. We have Dr. No, which kicked off probably the most important franchise in the 1960s with James Bond that has completely reinvented that entire genre to itself, the spy thriller. We had one of the most important courtroom movies ever made in the adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck and obviously Lawrence of Arabia. So those are my top four. Okay. All right. We get to your number four. My number four, 1950. We have All About Eve, Sunset Boulevard, Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Mind, a very underrated Western. It was James Stewart's first Western, Winchester 73, Cyrano with uh, Jose Farrar, which was the stage adaptation. Harvey, again, a stage adaptation with James Stewart, The Asphalt Jungle, Rashomon, and a very underrated Hitchcock thriller, Stage Fright. So I'm looking at these and going, this is a solid, solid year. And the Mount Rushmore is going to be all about Eve, Sunset Boulevard. I'm going to go off the beaten path and say Rashomon and Stage Fright. Stage Fright is probably off the beaten path. I don't know for most film fanatics if Rashomon is off the beaten path. But I know that you really appreciated that one when we watched it earlier for the show. We have an episode about two of those four, and we have at least one more on the schedule for the upcoming, not this year, but next year. And obviously, when you have three all-time classics leading your year, that's going to be a particularly noteworthy year. I don't have it in my top 20, but I respect that you put it in. All right, let's go to Mr. Corns' number four. This is a year that I wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself, but as he talks through it a little bit more, 
there are a few headliners on this particular list. It wasn't necessarily a good Best Picture nominee list behind the Best Picture winner, but definitely has quite a few good entries. He has 1993. For starters, this is the greatest individual year any director has ever had. Steven Spielberg released both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Those two films alone warrant a spot in the top 10. There was also the stoner classic Dazed and Confused that started Linklater's career, a comedy masterstroke in Groundhog Day, some great crime dramas like True Romance, A Bronx Tale, and Carlito's Way, and other iconic genre films including The Fugitive, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Sleepless in Seattle. Did you have that anywhere? It was one of my considerations, but it didn't make my 13, and it definitely is not in my 10. So for his top four, I have Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Groundhog Day and Dazed and Confused, which I think he'll be happy with. Okay. All right, let's go to my number four, a previously discussed, but 2019. For my top four, I think it's fairly obvious the first three. Those were the three that I thought were the ones that garnered the most attention in that particular year. 1917 is an absolutely astounding war picture. To take a much forgotten war like World War I and create such a spectacle out of that and then not only the gimmick of doing the one shot, which obviously there's a cut in the middle of it, so you kind of have a little bit of editing, but the cinematography in that alone is outstanding, if not just the totality of the story following one soldier's journey from one set of the lines to the other to carry a very simple message. It's a, a fantastic picture and would have been a deserving winner in almost any other year, but it's going against what I think to be two of the best films of the last decade in once upon a time in Hollywood, which personally I think is Tarantino's best film in how he subverts his own, let's say film fans that are expecting one thing out of him for the entire movie. And then you don't get it and you don't get it and you don't get it up until the point that you do. And the way that it breaks tension in the final moments of that film are just amazing. And to obviously see the throwback nature of it, going back to the late 60s, combining with all of the Hollywood filmmaking and all the characters that are just so rich in that particular story, I, I think it's truly one of the great scripts. Parasite, a film that has been divisive within our own household because there are people <laughs> who absolutely hate it, mom, and then there are people like me who really appreciated, maybe not loved the film, but could easily respect and understand the master craftsmanship that went along with that film. I imagine that when we revisit it later this year, that I will get even further of an appreciation for what that film is. Yes. But my number four on that particular list, and we've already brought up a bunch of films from that particular year, but the accomplishment that was done in Avengers Endgame, wrapping 23 movies together in one of the more satisfying endings let's say to a genre of film or a franchise film is just outstanding. I thought it, it should have been in consideration for best picture that year, even though we had really 10 great nominees in that particular year, the fact that that couldn't even really upset the list. And it's the number one grossing film of all time, at least for a little bit of, until avatar re-released and re-released to get it just over the line again. But it's, it's one of the, defining moments in our culture for moviedom over the last 10 years of my life. 
So I have 1917 Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Avengers Endgame as my four entries from 2019. Obviously, there were a ton of other really great movies for that particular year with Marriage Story, Little Women, which I thought was, okay, Greta Gerwig, I'm in on you now. If you're going to do stuff like that, you're exciting. John Wick 3, which I thought was much better than John Wick 2. I know I'm in the minority in that. Ford versus Ferrari, just a really fun kind of sports film. Another great Matt Damon starring role. Christian Bale's fantastic. Jojo Rabbit. Now, your mileage may vary on that particular film, but I thought it was fantastic. I can understand, though, if it offends some people. Marriage Story. Noah Baumbach's great small drama between two people and kind of the unraveling of a relationship instead of the other way around. I thought was fantastic. And one of my favorite movies of the last five years, Knives Out. So, Uh alone those would already cover what uh, I thought was a pretty great year in movies, but I'm sure there's plenty more that I've missed. All right, so let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing this week, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering Thor The Dark World from 2013. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Now, before we get to our top three, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Oh, we have a very long list. Tom Smothers, 86, American comedian, musician, Uh, The Smothers Brothers, and an actor, Get to Know Your Rabbit in Serial. Very cutting-edge television variety show on CBS in the uh, early 70s. Mike Newsbaum, 99, American actor, was in Fatal Attraction, Field of Dreams, and Men in Black. Richard Romanus, 80, American actor, was in Mean Streets, Strike Force, Wizards, and The Sopranos. Casey Kramer, 67, American actress. The Runner Stumbles, Watercolors, Baskets, Behind the Candelabra, Transparent, was the daughter of Stanley Kramer. David Leland, 82, British film director. Wish You Were Here, Virgin Territory, Band of Brothers. Screenwriter for Mona Lisa, was a BAFTA winner in 1988, and was also an actor. David Kernan, 85, British actor, Mix Me a Person, Zulu, Carry On Abroad. Maurice Hines, 80, American dancer, singer, and actor, was in the Cotton Club, younger brother of Gregory Hines. Sandra Reeves Phillips, 79, American actress. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Round Midnight, and Lean on Me. Was also a writer and singer. Shecky Green, 97, American comedian and actor. History of the World Part 1, Splash, and Tony Rome. And Tom Wilkinson, 75, British actor, The Full Monty, In the Bedroom, Michael Clayton, Batman Begins, 
BAFTA winner in 1998, three-time Oscar nominee, and an Emmy winner, 2008. Yes, he won the Emmy for his portrayal of Ben Franklin in the John Adams series on HBO. He was a three-time Oscar nominee for various films, including Michael Clayton and The Full Monty. He was a guy that if you saw probably 10 movies a year in the 90s to middle of maybe even late 2000s, was in probably three out of the 10 that you saw. He was everywhere and fantastic actor. I was definitely sad to see that one go. I know that you had some affinity for Tom Smothers and as well as just the Smothers brothers in general. Richard Romanus, I know that uh, he might be famous to a few people that have seen uh, Mean Streets, but also if you're more into The Sopranos, he was Jennifer Melfi or the psychiatrist's husband for like four episodes on that show. That's how I particularly know him. But it's this time of year. Every time we get to this post-Christmas, early January kind of period, we end up losing a lot of people just in the general population, let alone just celebrities and people who contributed to the industry. So certainly sad to see a list of 10 so early into the year, but unfortunately not surprising and not somewhat unexpected. So we remember all of these here for their many, many contributions with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Dad, we left off at your number three. Yes, we did. My number three, 1941. Films on that list include Citizen Kane, The Maltese Falcon, Suspicion, Sergeant York, One Foot in Heaven, Little Foxes. Additional films include Meet John Doe, High Sierra, uh, Sullivan's Travel, and the Disney animated film Dumbo. I think it's a powerful year. I, I like how green was my valley, but I still think Citizen Kane was the best film that year. I think Maltese Falcon is second. Uh, Suspicion is a highly underrated Hitchcock film, and so I'll go with that as third, and I will say How Green Was My Valley is fourth. A very strong year, and Sullivan's Travel, if anybody has not seen that, it is a fairly good film. It's a, it's just kind of a nice little film. I th think I ended up watching it one Friday night or something with your mother. We were just looking for something lighter, and it's just kind of a nice film to watch. Nothing real involved, but it's a very underrated film. And um, so I think it was a strong year. So that's why that's the number three for me, because just the power of Citizen Kane, the Maltese Falcon. I mean, even Sergeant York should probably be in my top four, but that in and of itself is a great film also. Certainly a really great year. The obvious being that Citizen Kane to most people should have won over How Green Was My Valley, but I don't discount How Green Was My Valley at all. I think no. that's unfortunately gotten a bad reputation because it was the winner. And it's one of those situations where a really good movie wins and becomes somewhat of a tragic figure. It's not one of these where it's 1952 and the greatest show on earth somehow won yeah. over high noon. This is an actual good <laughs> film that, yes, I understand Citizen Kane is probably the greater film and is revered much more, but 
How Green Was My Valley was still a very good movie. It just kind of unfortunately is a victim of winning over Citizen Kane. And I'm sure yes. there are plenty of other years, like we already established Forrest Gump is a very good movie that won over probably two better movies. Yes. So another year that I didn't actually have on my list. So I'm glad that we've kind of got a divide on some of these. Okay. All right. A year that's come up before and was of consideration for me as well, but uh, didn't make my final cut. 2010 is Mr. Corns's number three. This year is notable for two movies that have been going toe-to-toe with one another online as to which is better, The Social Network and Inception. Both are modern classics no matter which way you slice it. Throw in arguably the best third film in a trilogy ever, Toy Story 3, a devastating look at romance in Blue Valentine, an eye-popping perfect comic book come to life in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. God, the fact that he threw that in there and made me read that. Psychological thrillers in Black Swan and Shutter Island, and we have a year for the record books. And if you're interested on, let's say, a revisionist take on the 2010 Oscars, look up Revisionist Almanac that is coming out, or will have come out already this Friday. So uh, that comes out on January 5th, so by the time this episode airs, that will already be out. But they are revisiting the 2010 Oscars with one of our five-time guests on the show, Kieran B., So look out for that one. All right, we get to my number three. This is where I had slotted 1976. I shouldn't have to say more than my top four. Taxi Driver, which I think is Scorsese's best film. Network, one of the best scripts ever written and has somehow turned from a controversial comedy at the time (laughs) to somewhat of a modern horror film. All the President's Men, probably the best journalism movie, period and still influential on all journalists today who seem to think that they can live inside that movie world and that their job is to undermine everything of institutions whatsoever instead of actually to support them. They apparently took the wrong message from that movie. And Rocky, the sports film that kicked off the sports film boom and one of the great American franchises. But if you need a few more from the 1976 period, I'll give you a couple of other ones to consider why I think it's higher on that particular list. Again, Marathon Man. We have a great horror film in The Omen. The Outlaw Josie Wales. And one that you missed when you nominated it, but Murder by Death. Ah, yes. Use your goddamn pronouns. All right. So we move to your number two. All right. 1957. The Bridge on the River Kwai, Twelve Angry Men, Peyton Place, Sayonara, Witness for the Prosecution, but additional films. An Affair to Remember, which we just saw this past weekend. The Sweet Smell of Success, which is a wonderful film if anybody hasn't ever seen it. Highly recommended. And Old Yeller. Bridge Over the River Kwai has always been one of my favorites, but 12 Angry Men is just phenomenal. Witness for the Prosecution is absolutely wonderful. And uh, so I'm going to go with 12 Angry Men, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, Witness for the Prosecution, and I'm going to go with The Sweet Smell of Success for the fourth. If you haven't seen it, it is wonderful and it is prescient and it shows the power that can be held by a journalist 
into manipulating people, circumstances, and situations because of the power they hold to manipulate public opinion. All right, let's move to Mr. Corns' number two. We have 1982. Though Gandhi isn't looked back on as a noteworthy Best Picture winner, there was more than enough in 1982 to warrant its place so high on my list. Two science fiction classics and Blade Runner and E.T. were released, though there were two iconic horror films that year, The Thing and Poltergeist. We got not one, but two Sylvester Stallone movies, First Blood and Rocky III, and the fantastic sequel in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Martin Scorsese also made his underrated The King of Comedy, plus we got a comedy great in 48 hours and an international masterpiece with Fanny and Alexander. So for his four, I'm going to go with First Blood, Blade Runner, E.T., and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I remember watching uh, First Blood in the theaters at a date, freshman year of college. Rosie Palm? No. Mm. Very nice young lady, but nothing materialized because I was going to transfer to another school and didn't want to start anything that uh, I couldn't advance. Fair enough. All right. A year that has yet to come up on anyone's list, but I have at my number two, 1959. Ben-Hur is one of the great epics ever made, even though it still annoys me how it starts to weave in the Jesus of it all somehow. But you have all-time classics like Some Like It Hot, the Billy Wilder comedy, Pillow Talk, my mother's favorite movie, and a, I would say, underrated episode of this show. We have one of my favorite westerns of all time in Rio Bravo, Anatomy of a Murder, one of the better courtroom dramas of all time with James Stewart, Diary of Anne Frank, which we will be covering later this year, an all-time Disney classic in Sleeping Beauty, and what we have discussed and is a top 10 greatest film of all time currently on our own list, North by Northwest. So for my top four, I have Ben-Hur, Rio Bravo, North by Northwest, and Anatomy of a Murder for 1959 at my number two. Okay. All right. So, please recap your list, and then we'll give you a drum roll for your number one. So the uh, all ten? Yes. Ten to number two. 2010, 1939, 1982, 1976, 1957, 1951, 1957. And your number one is? I have 1962. Lawrence of Arabia, Mutiny on the Bounty, the remake. I really love the music, man. To Kill a Mockingbird is just a phenomenal film. But some of the... um, The extra films or the films that are that bring it deeper the days of wine and roses you cannot watch that film and watch uh jack lemon without just having an emotional connection that transcends you get depressed by the end of the film the man who shot liberty valance i think is uh probably john wayne's best film Whatever happened to Baby Jane was the resurrection of Betty Davis's career later on. The Birdman of Alcatraz is a very underrated film. I think The Manchurian Candidate is a, a very great film as well. 
it is just a powerful year, really deep for films. Even The Longest Day is one of my more favorite war films because it's so real and follows the um, Cornelius Ryan book so well. On the Pantheon, I would say Lawrence of Arabia. Well, excuse me, I would go To Kill a Mockingbird first. Lawrence of Arabia, The Music Man, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. All right. So to recap Mr. Corns' list, he had 1954, 1962, 2019, 1975, 1974, 1999, 1993, 2010, 1982. And for his number one, he had 1994. You have a very well-received Best Picture winner by the general audience in Forrest Gump, the highest-rated movie on IMDb, The Shawshank Redemption, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which helped change the way people thought about structuring a film narratively, and one of the greatest animated films of all time, The Lion King. There was also a great comedy that year, Dumb and Dumber, an important film in independent cinema, Clerks, and several key international films like Chung King Express, Three Colors, Red, and Il Pastino. So that is his number one. All right. And unfortunately, my number one was preempted. I thought I would be on my own with this one, but let's count down from 10. I have at number 10, 2016, number 9, 1975, number 8, 1995, number 7, 2008, number 6, 1994, number 5, 1962, which appeared on all three of our lists, number 4, 2019, Number three, 1976. Number two, 1959. And my number one overall, 1957. Damn you. You had to take it first. (laughs) In addition to having one of the great Best Picture winners of all time in David Lane's The Bridge on the River Kwai, an absolute masterpiece of an epic film, that he would only top with his own Lawrence of Arabia a few years later. You have three of the greatest courtroom dramas ever made in Pads of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick film with Kirk Douglas, an absolute banger of an absolute military courtroom film, 12 Angry Men, one of my top five favorite films of all time, and Witness for the Prosecution. But if that's by itself not enough to impress you, let's throw in Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, The Seventh Seal, a great international Ingmar Bergman film, An Affair to Remember, a top 10 AFI-recognized romantic film of all time, and Gunfight at the OK Corral. Ah, yes. But my top four nominated for this particular year, Paths of Glory, The Bridge on the River Kwai, 12 Angry Men, and Witness for the Prosecution. Four films that I love. You need to watch Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, I I certainly do. 12 Angry Men will be coming up for a revisit here later in the year. If you have not re-listened to our Bridge on the River Kwai episode anytime (laughs) soon, I would certainly go back to it. And uh, I'm sure we're going to get to the other two films at some point in the near future as well. So definitely one of the great years in film. All right. So that does it for this list episode. How do we feel? We took a a small detour to start the season. Yeah, it was fun to do something a little different. 
that we didn't, you know, that we could kind of play around and do things on our own, not have to sit through or sit. Not that I find it distasteful to sit and watch the movie. It's just with uh, everything else going on. I think, what did we watch? Something like seven films over the uh, New Year weekend? I don't know about the New Year weekend, but definitely over the two holiday weekends, we probably got in seven or so. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed Maestro. So, yeah. I can respect a lot of things about Maestro, but I think it has certainly a lot of major flaws in it. I don't think the structure narratively made a lot of sense to me. I didn't think the directing was as strong as I thought A Star is Born was for Cooper, but his performance I think is definitely worthy of a Best Actor nomination, and it seems all but certain to get one. I think Carrie Mulligan was the best thing of the movie for me, and the fact that she still doesn't have an Oscar three years on from when we said she should have won one for Promising Young Woman is somehow a travesty. She's got to win sometime for something, and I just hope it's not one of her lesser movie roles. But if she doesn't win this year, and I would guess that she probably won't, she's got another couple of strong efforts coming up here, I think, in the next year as well. So definitely an actress that's high up on my I-gotta-see-her-in-anything list. I know that we watched The Iron Claw in theaters. Oh, We both thought phenomenal. it was great. Most yeah. of the people I talked to, with the exception of one Mr. Andrew Corns, who was disappointed by the movie have really enjoyed the film. I think he's a little too close to it, given that he's a big wrestling fan. And I think he was giving too much, too many comparisons to what the real life story is and whatever else, but neither of us are wrestling fans. So we could just appreciate it as a movie, as opposed to does it live up to the real life story? Uh, Apparently there was a sixth brother that they wrote out of the film that also died tragically. Wow. But One, if you're not like a big wrestling fan, I would recommend, but maybe bring a pocket of tissues, especially for the the few ending moments for me, I I thought were really great. And Zac Efron, definitely a great actor who's kind of blossomed out of the original high school musical shell that he was pitted in. So another movie that I just recently watched that you only saw the first bit of, but I kind of interspliced in between the football game the other night when it was on late and you had already gone to bed. Anatomy of a Fall is probably going to end up being a top five movie for me this year. I guess the few faults that I would have for it can be countermanded by the fact that I know nothing about the French court system. And so I don't know what actually goes and what doesn't. But there are many things in that movie that would not fly in an American court system. And that's what I unfortunately am comparing it to. And I know that from all of zero days of being an actual lawyer. Hmm. Well, I didn't get to that part yet. But the first half of it was, I, I thought, very well done. And the methods by which they were trying to build tension within the film were very well done. So I'm looking forward to watching the last part. I may sit down with your mother this weekend and watch the whole thing. I'll start it over again for her. But uh, the other film that I want to try to get in this weekend is The Holdovers. If anybody's scared to watch it because of the uh, subtitles and such, because it is technically a French film, half the film is in English. So you should be able to pick up on more than you would in some other international films. I would not say that it's something that would prevent me from watching the film, but there is at least one all-time scene in English 
that <sighs> the second hour of the film is fantastic. Like I, I, as much as the first hour was good, the second hour is one of the better hours of a movie that I, I can remember. The ending leaves me a little bit cold, but I think that's the intention of it. And it's grown on me the more I've thought back on it. But overall, a two and a half hours well spent, if you ask me. And I would recommend it to just about anybody who's a film fan. Okay. So any other thoughts to kick off our season five here? Boy, if uh, five years ago you would have said we'd be doing five seasons, (laughs) I would have thought, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're going to have our fourth anniversary here at the end of February. And we've got episode 200 coming up in, I think, four weeks. So we've got some really good entries ahead of that. And we've got a few good guests lined up already for this season. Some of the returning favorites, but much more in store. And uh, I know we have at least a few more list episodes. We've got a bunch of random things planned as well. So this is going to be an interesting season. So stay tuned. And if you haven't already please hit that subscribe button wherever you, I guess, listen to this episode now on YouTube and all of the major podcast subscribing platforms. Google, as long as Google Podcasts still lasts, and uh, Spotify, I know we get a majority of our audience from Apple Podcasts, so for any of those of you who have subscribed, we thank you. Anyone else, please just hit that follow button, and uh, we would really appreciate it. So that's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. The world is full of complainers, and the fact is nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Next week for our 196th episode, we're set to discuss the first feature film from Joel and Ethan Cohen, Blood Simple, from 1984. Directed and written by Joel Cohen with Ethan Cohen. Music by Carter Burwell. Starring John Getz, Francis McDormand, and M. Emmett Walsh. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnydunkinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.